Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome to It's Lit, where all things literary live at The Root. I'm Danielle Belton, The Root's Editor-in-Chief, here with Managing Editor of The Glow Up, Maisha Kai. And today, we're talking with award-winning poet, playwright, and writer, Claudia Rankin. Claudia is the author of five collections of poetry, including Citizen, an American Lyric, for which she won the Penn Open Book Award, the Penn Literary Award, and an NAACP Award. She also won the National Book Critics Circle Award for Poetry. Citizen also holds the distinction of being the only poetry book to be a New York Times bestseller in the nonfiction category. Claudia's latest book is called Just Us, which is a collection of essays, poems, and historical documentation of whiteness and race in America. It is truly a stunning book. Maisha, what do you think? I would say stunning is definitely the word. I think that, you know, Claudia Rankin's brilliance is already well foretold. But this particular book, you know, she's giving us kind of this multimedia exploration of, of race. And I, I just, I, I was absolutely transfixed by it. No, she's a fantastically accomplished woman. And I'm so honored mm-hmm. to have her with us. So is that person on the motorcycle. <laughs> I know, right? That was rude. So rude. <laughs> Claudia is such an amazing person, and I'm so honored to have her with us on It's Lit. So why don't you kick us off, Maisha? You know, I got to say, I feel like if we've got Claudia Rankin, we're doing big things. So let's not delay any further. Let's get to our conversation with Claudia. Claudia, welcome to It's Lit. (laughs) Thank you for having me. We're so happy to have you with us today because this is a podcast about books and you have one. So we're thrilled (laughs) to have you. And to kick things off, we'd like to ask all our authors to name at least one book that they have read in their lifetime that they have considered to be life-altering, life-changing, life-affirming. Like this is the book that change things for you? Well, that, you know, that changes every week. Well, not every week. That's a little dramatic, but over the years. But the most recent book I've read is Isham Matar's The Return has Ah. been profound. It's a book that I think about and think about and return to. And, And so in the last year, I would say that's the book. Oh, okay. Amazing. So, of course, we're here to talk about your newest book. Just Us, which is a play on the word justice and also references Richard Pryor's quote, you go down there looking for justice and what you find, just us. Just us. Clearly, we are in a moment (laughs) when we're hearing widespread calls for justice. It's part of the implication here that not everyone even knows what that means or looks like. Well, I, I think, you know, I want to I want to problematize the idea 
that we don't know. I think we do know. We do know. And by we, I mean everybody. Everybody knows. Um, People who benefit from a justice system that works know what that means. And people who don't know, or rather can't rely on the justice system working, also knows what that means. And I, I think a government that has consciously removed um, the, the, the benefits of a functioning justice systems for vast portions of the population, namely Black people and people of color, also know what they're doing. So I, I would take out the idea of unconsciousness inside the mechanisms of the justice system. So you're among several authors we've recently interviewed whose current work seems to have eerily forecasted this moment that we're in right now in 2020. And as Black women, maybe that's because we tried to tell them in 2016. (laughs) As we approach another election, what do you hope just us contributes to the discourse? I, I think we can't do this thing by ourselves. We cannot get... You can't counter the kind of illegitimate, double-dealing, cheating (laughs) mechanisms of the present government without the forces of all of us. And that, in order for that to happen, I think we need to start talking to each other. We need to understand that, in fact, we're on the same side. We really want the same kinds of things. And I, I think the protest movements of late this summer... It's my first sign that people are beginning to understand that, that this, in fact, could be the beginning of a fascist regime being put in place. And as Americans, if that's not what you want, we're really going to have to get together and not allow racism, for one, to be the dividing factor. I mean, you know, this administration has cleverly used anti-Blackness to create a wedge, and now it's using anti-science to create a wedge into the population. And and so I, I think we need to start talking. I, I know that's, that's sort of fundamental, but, it, but I think it needs to happen. Because we're all going to, ha- you know, we have to flood, we have to vote early, we have to flood the voting booths, we have to make it so that any kind of voter suppression is made mute by the overwhelming response in support of the Biden-Harris ticket. And so we're, we're really going to have to to understand where our differences really are. Yeah, I love that you commented on the fact that we're, we're seeing the beginnings of a fascist regime, because I, I totally agree and would even argue that we're here. Like, this is what that looks like. And to your point, if you don't want this, this may be your last grasp at power to prevent it. You know, I have to thank you for this book. I, I think it's really stunning. And, you know, I guess it shouldn't come as a surprise because, you know, you're a poet, you're a playwright, you're an artist, you're a full-fledged creator. But this really moves between mediums seamlessly to me. And it, it actually seems to kind of mimic the seemingly like random ways that the human mind processes information and, and memories and, and dreams even. And was that deliberate? Was that your intent? Yes. Why not? 
<laughs> I'll take it. <laughs> intention is everything. Well, my intention was really to create a format on paper in the book form that allowed us to take in all the ways in which we could understand a thing. And so how do we do that? Well, there is the kind of conversational telling of the conversation that happens on the verso side of the page. But then there are all the other moments when you think back and you're like, wait, what was the actual fact of this? And how do you keep that present and bring all of those moments in? So that the the format, I mean, for me, each book is a challenge in structure. And I can't really separate the subject out from the structure. And the two things for me are actually what makes writing exciting. It's it's not just about the language on the page. It's like how the delivery system is going to work. Yeah, I mean, I was deeply intrigued by it. And I, I really, I really enjoyed it. And it was not a book I wanted to rush through or that I think anybody should rush through. And, you know, those familiar with your work, you know, I love that you were referring to your previous works. You know, I, I think the most famous amongst them is probably Citizen, which preceded this one, you know, and, and you have been having this ongoing exploration of the meaning of race, particularly in America, but just us zeroes in on white male privilege in particular, right? <laughs> and it's so interesting because obviously that's so much of the core of what we're talking about in this general sense, but it's also the core of everything this country was founded on. So what were you hoping to understand or potentially dismantle through this this exploration? Well, I think one of the most important things around white male privilege that I discovered in the writing of this book was that when I talk about white male privilege, and I think maybe when you use that term too, we're thinking about what it means to be able to walk in the world as a white person and how that automatically attaches to mechanisms of power. When white people hear the term white male privilege, they seem to think you're talking about economic privilege. And even though economic privilege comes from white privilege, it isn't the same thing. It's not necessarily the same thing. I am talking about the inability to walk into a store without being followed, the inability to be pulled over by a police without the police not having to engage the mechanisms of projected criminality onto me, whoever I am. So the writing of the book made me have to pull those two things apart, you know, because I think one of the um, the snags that often happens with conversations is that people are like, oh, I had to work hard. I didn't I wasn't born rich. And I'm like, but I, that's not what I'm talking about. You were born white. <laughs> and and right. that comes with its own slide, you know. It it just does. It's it's nothing about you. It's just does. And that started in 1790 with the immigration laws that said that the people who could vote were white Anglo-Saxon males. They could vote and they could own property. And ever since then, we have been trying, and I mean everybody else, women, white women included, to get inside that equation.
Claudia, you teach a course at Yale called Constructions of Whiteness, in which your students interview white people in their lives about their understanding of how whiteness functions in American history. Recently, Yale was accused of discrimination against white and Asian students by the Department of Justice, a claim that paralleled one made during a conversation in your book. With that in mind, did this development strike you as ironic or inevitable? Well, I think inevitable. I think one of the things this administration has taught um, people who are in um, agreement with our our executive leader is to turn the arguments back around. I mean, not in logically, but just do it. Just do it. Just turn the argument around. And so I think that that's one of one of the ways in which Republicans who support this administration have been um, attacking critique of them, you know, and and so I take some of that criticism as part of, you know, yesterday there was a tweet that um, went out where he said, if you live in a blue state, you should get out. And I think <laughs> I think that the blue states are going to be under attack in lots of ways, not just in terms of the institutions that exist within them, but in terms of tax laws, in terms of economic recovery, as we're going to obviously need that kind of support, and we're not going to get it if he's in charge for much longer. So I see it as an umbrella of assault that is coming with the assumption that any institution person in a blue state is anti this administration, which is probably not far off. Because why would you not be anti anything that wants your destruction, you know? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it mean, it really speaks to also the anti like kind of intellectualism of this administration, like, you know, those assumptions that needing to kind of like separate out your elites, <laughs> per se, and kind of vilifying what it means to be a critical thinker. But, you know, Speaking of schools, actually, you share an anecdote in this book about a friend's four-year-old Black son being characterized as violent by his preschool teachers for, you know, some pretty age-appropriate behavior. And coincidentally, I was kicked out of preschool at the same age (laughs) for similar behavior, you know, just like you know, acting out in retaliation against some, some child who happened to be a white child in Texas. And you know, you also kind of do this really interesting thing where you you juxtapose that with the entitlement of many white parents that we've seen, you know, on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, the Brooklyn, uh, you know, elsewhere in the country, where they're essentially perpetuating the segregation of public schools and your own concern with your child's education and that it would fall victim to racial bias. So, you know, as both a parent and an educator Do you have any advice to give to Black parents who are trying to advocate for their children in a system that is so overrun by bias? Well, I think one of the things I love about that piece is that my friend who, the mother of that child, she does advocate for her child. And, you know, she says what she's learned is that she's going to have to be paying attention. You cannot take anything for granted. You cannot assume that 
our children's best interests are going to be taken care of inside these schools. I mean, you know, the the large percentage of teachers are white women. God bless them. I mean, it's a thankless job. It's like, it's incredible. They should be paid more than anybody else. But as white women, they're also socialized inside a, a system where they, um, they're racist. And they need to have that as something in front of them that they know that they have to negotiate and, and really begin to question the things that they're doing and saying. I mean, I remember giving a talk, I think it was in Minneapolis where I was talking to high school teachers and I said to them, you know, can you all write down one thing you do that you know is racist in the classroom? And they all wrote, I mean, and I'm not, you know, I, I, I just, I, I want you to know I'm not making this up. This really happened. They all wrote down the same thing, even though they were different, you know, from different schools. And, and these women all wrote, and most of them were women. There was a black man. There might have been a white man, but, you know, most white women. And they all wrote down that when black children in their class did well, they were surprised. <laughs> and that the kid could have been getting hundreds from the time from kindergarten to 12th grade. And then the child comes in and says, I got into Harvard. Um, <laughs> and then they're like, what a surprise. And they said they didn't know why they were always so surprised. And they hated that they said that. Like a white kid would do something which was consistent to their career. And they would say, of course, congratulations. A black kid, what a surprise. And, you know, and, and some of them were in tears. They were like, I don't know what I keep doing. And then the kid's looking at them like, what do you mean? You know, you're the one who helped. You're the one who told me to apply. You're the one who helped me with my essay. You're the one who gave me a hundred on every test I've taken. And now you're telling me what a surprise. So, you know, so I think it's even that for them was just like a small thing, but it was a thing that they saw themselves doing again and again and again. Yeah. You know, I'm almost in tears now because I went to high school in Minnesota and I was like, oh, my God, <laughs> that is very true. <laughs> well, that's definitely true for me growing up in St. Louis in the Midwest as well. My teachers always seem to be routinely uh, surprised and pleased with my uh, success and performance, which I give them a little bit of credit for, but most of it goes to my mom, who was an educator who taught me how to read when I was three. So I was very much like, you can take as much credit as you like. (laughs) (laughs) You're still not my mama. But I do do think those teachers, I mean, you know, you try saying in a classroom all day long. I don't know. <laughs> I used to be a teacher. I was a teacher. I I know exactly what that is. No, but yeah. I mean it's a lot of work, and I I I see that. But it's but they're also subject to the 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 acculturation of this society, which is a deeply racist society. Of course, and, and you know, so it's going to play itself out in in one way or another. Now, entitlement is a major theme throughout Just Us, uh, specifically the expectation that whiteness automatically confers privileges and exemptions those very same people then turn around and deny exists. Even in this moment of so-called wokeness, 
Do you think there's any real possibility white people will recognize the depth and danger of their entitlement? I think it's difficult for people, anybody, white, black, you know, Latinx, Asian, anybody to give up anything they have. And it just so happens that in this country, white people have the most stuff, you know, and not accidentally, intentionally, intentionally, they have things. And so they're not there. I think this concept of sharing resources is going to be the toughest part of their anti-racist commitment. You know, they say we don't support racial profiling. We don't support over-policing. We don't support killing of Black people. But when it comes to having to think about how housing works, think about how education works, think about opening up spots for children, rerouting those neighborhoods that were gentrified and people were put, that will be a harder and bigger question. And we saw that on the Upper West Side when the principal said, hey, these schools are now majority white and Asian. We really should open them up. And parents were like, no way. No, because you bring Black people in here, then it's going to be broken. I mean, that's the assumption that the introduction of Blackness is the introduction of brokenness. And we see that in neighborhoods, too. This is something that um, Robin DiAngelo speaks about and Ephraim Kendi speaks about. So, you know, we all know it. But those are the areas that I think this newfound surge towards equal justice we're really going to have to attend to. Something you did in this book as well, and your transparency here I thought was so striking, was that you were questioning, as you were questioning these larger dynamics of white privilege and white male privilege, you were also kind of like exploring those dynamics in the context of your own interracial marriage, you know, which is also a longtime artistic collaboration. And you write, This white man who has spent the last 25 years in the world alongside me believes he understands and recognizes his own privilege. Did writing this book kind of deepen that understanding for you both or for your family? I I think so. I I, I think that the minute you name something, it's hard not to see it. You know, um, I think you can go along for a long time and take things for granted. But once you name it, then it's seen and it has to be, it has to be negotiated. So, you know, it was funny because my husband and daughter were out not long ago and, um, and he got into something with some people about not telling us what documents we needed, blah, blah, blah. And, and, and my daughter came back and she said, you know, he was exhibiting his white male privilege. <laughs> um, you know, the person, she was like, you know, they made a mistake. <laughs> you, <laughs> but, you know, um, so that's what I mean. It's like it, it's now in the house as a thing in the same way if somebody forgot stuff all the time and you said you forget things all the time, you would say, oh, this is another example of you forgetting something. And so now his unavoidable white male privilege is a thing that can be referred to <laughs> in our right. in our household. <laughs> 
I mean, and we do all do that. I mean, I know I do it sometimes. I don't have white male privilege, but there are times that I know I use class privilege. I mean, there are times I have to check my light skin privilege, right? Like there, there are all these things that we do, these functions, you know, your, your able-bodied privilege, what have you, that we employ. But you also speak to, in one of your more vulnerable moments, you speak to a feeling of being disposable as a Black woman, which I personally found both deeply relatable and a little bit triggering (laughs) because, you know, I I definitely felt that. And it occurred to me again, as you were kind of exploring our collective obsession with blondness, for instance, do you think that that sense of rejection and expendability is just an inherent part of the Black female experience, particularly in America? Well, I don't think it's just America. I mean, I I have, you know, I have been, I was born in Jamaica. I've been in West Indies on vacation and, you know, like a a black person will there and then a white person comes and they, it's almost like they forgot you were standing there and they were in the middle of a sentence talking to you, you know? So I think it's a dynamic, the privileging of whiteness as more central, more important, more potentially lucrative, you know, like I'm going to get a bigger tip from that white person than I am from you. So I'm not, I, I need to go over there now. So all of that, that happens there here. It, it, it goes without saying in a way, people make assumptions about you based on your race. And it's just that simple. And for black women, it's something you have to negotiate your entire life. I mean, it doesn't, it's a weird thing because it doesn't necessarily impede your life, but it has to be negotiated. You know, you can't not negotiate it. I I mean, I have not, there are Black women who say, I don't experience racism. I don't know why you harp on this stuff. (laughs) And Those I'm, black women are lucky. Yeah. I know, right? I was like, where are they? <laughs> I know. I was where interviewed by a guy and he said to me, you know, my wife is black. He was a white guy. He said, my wife is black. And she told me she doesn't experience any racism. I was like, that's great. <laughs> you know, like I, I would love to meet her. Um, <laughs> so, but, but I think for the most of us, for the most of us, it's part it's it's just part of the negotiation it's like saying that the fact that we're women is not something that we have to negotiate our entire lives and it's beyond colorism you know it might be at the end of the day you're a black woman and we are about to see it full on in color with this vp nomination absolutely of, of kamala harris kamala harris. i agree kamala harris Kamala. Yes. Kamala. <laughs> we want to make sure we say it right because yes. they seem determined not to, right? Exactly. Kamala. Kamala Harris. <laughs> now, Claudia, before we wrap, I want to touch on something that you wrote in your book to quote you. You say, to create discomfort by pointing out facts is seen as socially unacceptable, end quote. And that quote meant a lot to me and Myesha to the point where we had to like laugh a little because that's something we do at the root every day. We have these uncomfortable conversations, whether people want to hear them or not, because we think they're important. And Just Us is full of uncomfortable conversations. I know like why it's important for us to have them, but why do you feel they're so crucial? Because we're having them whether or not we're having them. 
that's the thing. I mean, people are thinking these thoughts. They are acting funny because things are going on in their heads that they're not speaking. So let's just speak it. Because I think if we could start saying certain things, we are going to make a pathway to say other things that we haven't gotten to because the society has suppressed all of this information that is still negotiating and driving the things that they're doing. So let's have the conversations we're having anyway and normalize them so that we can get to the next thing, whatever that is. I love that. Get to the next thing. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. We are full-throated believers. <laughs> and let's let's, ha- let's get this out the way. Like, why are we avoiding this? We've been here <laughs> since 16, 19. Let's have this conversation. It's, it, I think it's a little overdue. <laughs> indeed. 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 Well, Claudia, thank you so much for joining us on It's Lit. Oh, thank you for having me. You guys are fun. I'm going to come back. Please do. You are such a pleasure and so brilliant. And thank you so much for this book. Oh, thank Um, you. I really, I really hope, I want everybody to read it. (laughs) Don't forget, we're all going to vote early. This is the new thing. So vote early. Read just us and vote early. (laughs) Vote early. That is right. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. The Root Presents It's Lit is produced by myself, Maisha Kai, and Michaela Heck. Our sound engineer is Ryan Allen. If you like the show and want to help us out, please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. It'll help other people find the show and will really help us out. We also love hearing from you, so if you feel inclined, leave us a review too. If you want to follow us online, I'm Black Snob on Twitter and at Belton Danielle on Instagram. And I'm at Maisha, that's M-A-I-Y-S-H-A on Twitter and Maisha Kai on Instagram. And before we go, Maisha, as always, it's fun to discuss what we're just reading, you know, for funsies, what we're working on. So what are you reading right now? You know, uh, I'm, I'm trying to get myself in the political frame of mind. I think, you know, that focus, I think we all need to have heading into November. And, uh, you know, I know it's a couple months off, but I am reading Tough Love by Susan Rice. She's not our VP pick, but I, I value this woman's insight so much. And I think, you know, she is exactly the voice I need to be reading right now as I deal with my frustration <laughs> with this administration. How politically relevant. What are you reading? I'm trying. I'm trying. <laughs> I'm reading something that is political, but I don't know how relevant it is. Although, depending on how this election goes in November, you know, we might experience some of it. I'm reading The French Revolution and Napoleon. Oh, hey now. By Charles Downer Hazen. Hey now. You know, I think those jokes write themselves, so I'm not even going <laughs> to take it there. <laughs> yeah, hopefully, you know, we'll be able to peacefully change power and not have to relive the French Revolution for, you know, I, just I'm just going to say, let them eat stimulus checks. That's what I'm going to say. <laughs> nice. <laughs> All right. Thank you, everyone, for listening. And please tune in again. This was It's Lit. That's right. Keep it lit, y'all.